And welcome, Mehaba Vehosh Geldenez, to our Talking Round North Cyprus podcast, where we discuss all manner of things to do with the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus. The people who live and work there visit or who have indeed retired out there. Speaking of which, that's exactly what my co-host and former BBC Radio colleague Roger Barra did over 10 years ago now. So, hi, Rog. How are you? And I know you've got family over at the moment. So, uh, how's all that going? It's going really well, thank you, Sarah. Uh, We call it Gaga Tours, not Saga, (laughs) uh, because we're all getting on a bit. And, yes, both my brothers and my cousin and partners are over. So, there's eight of us here up in Ilgaz, a wonderful little village right next to Gillam's Winery, which is always a good place for a family <laughs> gathering, I find. And um, yeah, we're having an absolute ball. Yesterday, some of us went with the Kashyaka walkers and we walked from Ilgaz right through to Kami, along through the mountain, if you like, through the mountain tracks, which was absolutely wonderful. And because it's November, the temperature is perfect for visitors. It's, you know, mid-20s and the... Um, we haven't seen a bit of rain or anything. So, uh, yeah, it's going really well. Fantastic. Fantastic. That sounds really, really nice. I'm working, but just so you know, but I'm very happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Living in a vineyard. Fly me, fly me. Now then, before we get to our big guest today, I just wanted to give a mention, if I may, to two of our podcast family, a couple of people we've interviewed over our over two years now that we've been doing the podcast. Can you believe that? Um, first of all, uh, Buse Chalibe, who runs Chalibe Hotel Nimemecek, um, she's just been awarded Future Promising Woman Entrepreneur of the Year, a snappy title, by the North Cyprus Business Women Association. So um, that's absolutely brilliant. So congratulations to her. Now, she's an incredible young lady. She runs her family hotel. We had Christmas there, actually, uh, last year, which was really lovely. And she makes it sustainable and she takes people down on the farm and uh, you can do wine tasting and you can feed the goats and all that sort of stuff. So uh, she's absolutely lovely. Um, Do hear her story. It's on the boutique hotel one. So uh, just scroll back through wherever you get your podcasts. Also a shout to uh, Jay Sezi Guzal who is the Turkish Cypriot film director who's been busy making a film for a couple of years now called The Divided Island and I saw on Instagram that he had his world premiere on Saturday the 25th of November in the UK and then he does hope to take it to festivals and I think he also is definitely going to take it to Cyprus so hopefully you'll all get a chance to see it Um, but if you want to hear his story which again is fascinating because he makes that film with a Greek Cypriot friend of his and they've tried to make it as balanced as they can but to sort of get the get the story out there so uh, you can hear his story on the Divided Island one yeah I'm hoping for a red carpet at some point Rog you and I <laughs> yeah I, I, I believe he did promise us that he, he did he did <laughs> so Rog I know you're on holiday um, but uh, have you been keeping your your ear on the news what's been happening out in the TRNC it's been pretty quiet, really, Sarah. Um, yesterday, there were an awful lot of Turkish flags flying and people were asking on social media, why is this? And uh, it's to commemorate the death of Ataturk, the, of course, the founder of modern Turkey. And he died on the 10th of November 1938. And he didn't, for all the wonderful things that he did for Turkey, he didn't really uh, a long life. He was a heavy drinker and heavy smoker and he passed away at the age of just 57. Wow. So um, uh, that's a bit of a shame, but certainly a a lot of people here in North Cyprus wanted to commemorate that and uh, did it by 
flying the flag. Because mm, there are a lot of statues to him around North Cyprus, aren't there? Well, and in Turkey as well. I mean, he really is revered. And as you say, the founding father of sort of modern Turkey still held in very, very high esteem. That's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Lovely. OK, well, let's get on to our guest today then. And it's an appropriate one, given that this weekend is Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday. Uh, Ralph O'Neill is a former army officer who became an operating theatre technician. And basically, that means being a medic on the battlefield. Uh, and uh, I think, Sarah, we just ought to warn uh, all of our listeners that uh, we did ask him about some of his most harrowing moments in some of the war-torn areas of the world. And so... Uh, Just be prepared, because he tells us, as it is, as it was. We chatted to him about how Cyprus must be in his blood, as he's now retired there, but was born in Cyprus as well. Dad was in the RAF regiment, and he was seemingly permanently posted either here or Singapore. He was a jungle warfare instructor, as well as an RAF regiment, and their their role, I don't know whether you know, is force protection, so they look after the military airfields all over the world. So in that time... In the early 60s, Nicosia was obviously the airport of choice, and that's where he was posted. And that's when I appeared. I was born in Larnaca late in 63. No, I wasn't born in, well, near Larnaca, in Decalia in 63. And then, however long they kept you in for in those days, I think it was only a couple of days when you had a baby, back up to Nicosia. And then when I was six weeks old, off I went to Singapore because dad was posted back there for its hot and sweaty couple of years in the jungle. And then after two years in the jungle, what normally happens is they'd say, OK, you've had a hot and sweaty posting. Where do you want to go next? And dad would say, I'll go to Cyprus, please. So we would come back here and then they would get sent two years later to the jungle again. So my first eight years of my life were flitting back and forth with this place in Singapore. So barely in UK at all. What do you remember of Cyprus from your childhood? In my childhood, um, to be honest, I don't have too many memories of when I was very young. Um, I seem to have more of Singapore because I think I was there in the later 60s. I can, of course, remember bits and pieces of the donkeys, which were seemingly more around the plain in the middle of Cyprus in those days. I obviously remember the food. I remember the the early drinks, I remember the joviality of the locals, you know, everybody getting on with each other. But equally, I knew things were a bit fraught out here because of what was happening in the 60s and things were on alert and, and stuff like that. Um, and then I remember a lot more in the 70s when I was back here, just after the Troubles. So 75 to 77, I remember a lot then. I was down at Akrotiri. Dad was looking after or helping looking after Akrotiri Airfield. And I remember going to school in Episcopi. Um, I remember every single square metre of underwater life around Akrotiri, all the reefs where all the groupers were, all my fishing. Everything revolved around the sea in those days. And that was primarily, I think, when I fell in love with the island. Um, But most of my life as a child a very, very young teenager in those days, was in the sea, on the sea, next to the sea, um, making fires and camping next to the sea, no mobile phones in those. It was all about, um, I'm off fishing, Mom, I'll see you in a couple of days, you know, and, and <laughs> things were like that, really. <laughs> so how then did you cope with going to boarding school, going to the UK, being put into school in the UK? Um, I know you're in Norfolk, so you weren't too far from the sea, but that must have been quite a culture shock for you. 
it was after being abroad for the early part of my life. So when I was eight, so it was about 71, I was toddled off to boarding school. My my sister was already in boarding school in Norwich. We were seemingly, if we were in UK, we seemed to be around the Cambridgeshire stroke Lincolnshire area. And then I kind of, I'm not saying it was against my will, and it certainly was my choice about looking at places to seemingly palm me off. But um, I found myself at boarding school at the age of eight in Hunstanton in Norfolk. Uh, to be honest, without going into too many details, I didn't have the best of childhoods with my mum. I was on the uh, end of her hand quite a few times for seemingly, you know how parenting was in those days. I'm not saying it was right, but seemingly minor crimes like being five minutes late coming in from fishing. You know, I'd get... Um, a stern um, word or something physical. And it was primarily when dad was away. So when I went to boarding school, in some ways, it was a bit of a relief. I um, I saw all these children around me of similar ages crying because they wanted to go home. But I was okay with it. You know, we were playing sport every day. I love my cricket, my football, hockey, rugby, athletics, everything. We were playing sport every day. We were getting well fed. And the the regime at boarding school in those days was not dissimilar to at home. Were you always going to go into the forces because of your father? I think so. Travel was in my blood. Sport was in my blood. I'd seen my dad. My dad was a sportsman. He was a parachutist. He was a cricketer, a very keen footballer. And I could see the advantages of that kind of career. And I I got to a stage when I left school. I did quite well at grammar school um, with my O-levels, as they were in those days. I think I got nine or something. So I was quite well set in terms of what doors were open for me career-wise. But I sort of wasted a couple of years from age 16 to 18, as you could in those days, doing a government training scheme or something like that. (laughs) And then at 18, I suddenly had this light bulb moment one day, and I thought, you know, I'm going to join the forces. And I applied for the Army, Navy and the Air Force all at once. Um, I trolled around Lincoln to the various careers office because they weren't all amalgamated in those days they were all different ones and uh, found the army getting back to me first and foremost and uh, (laughs) I saw lots of pictures in a a pamphlet this is going to sound a bit peculiar but a lot of the pictures were of a pond with some lovely lily pads and my love for fishing I thought well I'd quite like to go there and this was the Keogh Barracks which was the home base of the Royal Army Medical Corps which was indeed where I ended up in March 1982. So, yes. Yeah, so tell us about becoming an operating theatre technician, because that's quite specific, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And when I joined up in 82, I was obviously in the medical services then, as you were, and you were trained as a basic medic first and foremost. And you had various different career branches that you could go in. You were already doing quite well to be at that phase, because when I, before I joined the medical services, I went for a three-day sort of it was a bit of a suck and see thing at Sutton Coldfield you know when they shouted at you and then you had a lot of attitude and aptitude tests they gave you various bits of paper depending on depending on how you did as to what career you know you could go for and if you didn't get many bits of paper destined um, to do a job uh, running around with a gun and shouting and getting shouted at for the rest of your career (laughs) or if you did relatively well could choose something a bit more career driven and that was when I think I saw the piece of paper with the the pond and the lilies. Um, I can't actually remember. It may have been a pamphlet from Lincoln Careers Office. It may not. 
But then at Keogh Barracks, when I was doing my training, this is in early 1982, because you train as a soldier first, you do your basic medical training. And a lot of the guys I was talking to, you're in like a dormitory in those days, you know, looking after each other, polishing the floor, sleeping under your bed because your bed was made nicely for the inspection in the morning. You know, that kind of life, which is really funny when you look back on it, but it's absolutely true. Um, and a lot of guys were going to work in theatre, but for some reason I'd chosen a career in um, pharmacy. And I did about six months on a pharmacy course, which actually put me in very good stead for my chosen career eventually. But six months into that, I realised that it I was more of a people person and it was more important for me to be mixing with people than to be stuck in a room on my own, making some sort of collodion to remove warts off somebody's feet, which is... Um, <laughs> which is what happened. And I ended up starting a theatre course and really, really sort of threw my everything into it. The pharmaceutical knowledge I'd gained and I, I passed my exams at the six month phase put me in great stead. And October 83, I started my operating theatre technician course, as was then. And this was at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot, which was on top of the hill there in Aldershot. I was still surrounded by my mates, got thrown into theatre life, um, did six months. My first six months of the course were in Aldershot, learning the basics of theatre etiquette, theatre life, watching the operations, helping with the anaesthetics, um, resuscitation and stuff like that. And then there I was off to Germany for the next phase. So I was off to Munster in Germany. It's where I was posted for the next 15 months. And I met, met my first wife to be there, um, who's the mother of my two children. So, yeah, that was that was a good time in my life, Germany. You've spent 22 years literally over the world in various conflicts, areas of instability. Can you give us some examples of some of the worst situations you found yourself in? I think um, lots of forces people have a little box in their head where they keep um, what they've seen and what they've done. And of course, my job, I was seeing blood and guts every day in the operating theatre. So things that I w was going to see in, a, in an area of conflict or a theatre of operation, as we used to call it then, as opposed to an operating theatre, didn't really, or seemingly, I don't think, affect me too badly. Um, probably the worst stuff I saw, besides the routine day-to-day -day stuff, but the worst stuff I saw was in Bosnia, really, and we were part of the IRT, which was the immediate response team, and we would go out on the helicopter with the, um, you know, one guy from bomb disposal because everything was mined out there. So you had no idea. You couldn't land the helicopter. You had to hover above somewhere, slip down on a rope. The um, explosive ordnance disposal expert would be poking the ground with his knife, you know, to make sure you could stand on it and things like that. And then you would be hoiking people out of vehicles that have gone off road into mined areas or things like that. And, I can remember specifically one day, and, and this is in the 90s, um, at the tail end of the Troubles in Bosnia, um, we were playing volleyball, as we did then. We were waiting for something to happen. So I was based at Sipovo, which was in kind of the centre, northern centre of the, the country of Bosnia, um, where the military hospital was, and we were in an old tyre factory was based in the centre because within 45 minutes of the helicopter, which was a bespoke helicopter for us, which was at the hospital, we could reach anywhere in the country to go to any incident. So this particular day, my immediate response team bleep went off. We were playing volleyball and I just knew you get a little bit of intel before you head off. I was being sent along with the other guys to somewhere called Bourgogne, 
and uh, we went there and I can remember our helicopter, which normally was a Sea King, was in for service that day. So we're in a Chinook. So, you know, one of those double rotored things, which are very big, very noisy. They make like a waka 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 noise. And when you're inside it, it's like the worst fairground ride you've ever been on. And the teacups are normally enough for me. The worst fairground. I could see the people opposite me were going green. There was about six of us in the back and these things can hold about 40 troops. But we had all our medical kit with us. Um, I had a massive backpack. The bomb disposal guy had his stuff. And we landed at this place on the ground. We did sort of a a spiral landing, which is what they do in, in these things, to come down from an altitude really quickly through this beast onto the ground. The back ramp went open and uh, got off it, not really knowing what to expect. We just knew that this particular day there'd been an explosion and it involved some guys who we were based with at Sipova. So the bomb disposal guy who was on the Chinook was basically going to somewhere um, of an unknown quantity to be confronted by injured people who were his friends. Um, and I knew these guys as well. So the Chinook got thrown onto the floor. We came out. The rotors were still turning as they did so that we could get away quite quickly if anything happened. Where we landed, I could see the bomb disposal guys who were there doing a job. This was an Operation Harvest, it was called. And they were collecting um, munitions off the locals um, who had got hold of these things during the troubled times there. So they'd have like an arms amnesty every now and then and go and collect the stuff. And to cut a long story short, um, one of the bomb disposal guys that was there in this Land Rover had received this package of this little eight-year-old girl. Um, and, and what he was given, it was about the size of two or three Coke cans. And it was a, I can't remember the make of it, but it was something from Central Europe, I don't know, Yugoslavia type anti-tank mortar. So you threw this thing over the tank. It was handheld. You threw it, a little parachute opened. This thing toddled down, hit the top of the tank, exploded and then drove a molten slug through the four inch steel wall of the tank onto the inside of the tank. And then there was another explosion and it basically liquidized everybody inside the tank. But this girl had obviously been given it by a father, this thing, and she passed it to the bomb disposal guy who said thank you to the girl, waved her off. And and these guys weren't dressed in um, a particularly threatening manner. They were, they were trying to come across as peacekeepers to come across as um, friendly people for the locals. And instead of just passing this munition that he'd been given back to the other guys behind him, who would then put it onto the back of the... Because a lot of these things were unstable because they'd been, they'd been like that for a few months. He had decided to unscrew one of the ends and open it. And as he unscrewed the end of this thing, because it um, wasn't very stable, uh, like a catch, a spring fell out. And then he knew then, because he was a munitions expert, this, this bomb disposal guy, that this was going to go off. And indeed it did. So this thing exploded. Um, the molten slug that was designed to, to drive through the wall of the tank flew about 300 metres at waist level. And there was one guy in a field who was hoeing, and it wasn't his day. And the molten slug hit him in the back. He was a local and just blew him to bits. But the initial explosion that was designed to drive the slug through the wall of the tank went off, and this guy 
Um, and it, his name I can still remember. I won't say it, um, but I can remember his name to this day. And it basically liquidized him from the chest downwards. Um, and the five guys that were behind him doing various things were various in various states of disrepair. So this is the the main thing from Bosnia that, that I can remember was that particular day. I mean, there were other days with various other injuries and, and um, bomb blast injuries and things like that. But this was the day that is really poignant to me. And it's the day that I always remember on Remembrance Week and Weekend and Day, which is very poignant this week, because I remember Corporal Bradley and I, I can remember just seeing, without going into too many details, I could see that the top bit of his body there was unscathed. The rest of him was gone, um, but his belt was still there because obviously it had a metal um, a metal catch on the front. And um, you can't do anything for, like, apart from cover them over. They, you know, you, you can be the best resuscitation expert in the world, but without your lungs, you're not you're not going to get much response from somewhere. And excuse me, but we always dealt with things with humour. As well, but the guys behind him, when the helicopter landed, normally, when I did my training at Aldershot, going back to those early days, you did sort of simulations of similar things to what I encountered that day, and you ran into the woods, and there were various different different military vehicles and that placed there on the side. Everybody was screaming, and there was someone staggering around who was in battle shock, and then you were you were taught, okay, it's breathing, bleeding, breaks and burns, so you. You, you, you treated the person with the breathing issues first and then the bleeding and then the brakes and then the burns. The brakes and the burns weren't going to die. And this day when the helicopter landed, it was like there was deadly silence. It wasn't screaming that, that I'd been taught to expect in that particular environment because when we got there, it was half an hour after the event itself. So the guys who were behind couple I nearly said his name there. So the guys who were behind him... Um, He'd, he was quite a big lad and he'd shielded a lot of the blast. But, I mean, one of them, I said, are you OK? He, and he was, he'd actually lit a cigarette and, and he said, yeah, I'm fine. My legs, my legs caning a bit was the actual word he uses. I looked down and he didn't have one. So I, I got a drip into him quite quickly. Um, there was three of us, no, two medical guys. There was there was myself and one consultant, an anaesthetist in that had gone out on that particular trip. So we were getting cannulas into these other five guys, getting fluids into them as well. Um, I can remember a lady doctor turned up by road. She And she started trying to dictate to us what to do. And, and you know, without being disrespectful to her, she was a general practitioner who wasn't used to that sort of scenario. So we ended up falling out because she was insisting that the bodies of the people that I, the bloke who got the, the local who got the molten slug in his back, and the poor bomb disposal guy who'd undone the catch. She was insisting that they were going to travel onto the helicopter to go back to our hospital in Sipovo. And I said, no, no, they're not going to get any worse. They can go by road. You know, you don't start putting dead people in with live people, especially when your team know the dead person. You know, it, it would have been absolute carnage on the helicopter and it wouldn't have been pleasant at all. So we did what we could with the guys who weren't deceased and uh, we got them back. I think it was about 20 minutes, half an hour flying time, got them back. And um, to this day, I presume they're all still alive. I mean, one of them had some copper in his eye from the explosion. And I know that isn't very good. I presume he lost the sight of his eye. Another one had got various fragmentation 
around his genitals and his midriff and stuff like that. So he wasn't very well. So we farmed some of them off to specialist American hospitals. Um, I went on another helicopter trip that day down to Sarajevo. That was with the bloke with the eye. And we left him there because they had a special ophthalmic um, department. And I can remember that day managing to get a nice T-bone steak as well at the American base at uh, Sarajevo by the airfield there underneath Mount Igman. And uh, that was quite a treat on a difficult day. And then I can remember we got back to Sipovo and um, the Padre. Um, and every sort of military hospital had a military Padre. And he came and spoke to us about what we'd seen that day and asked us if we needed any further support, which we were all sure we didn't. And, uh, yeah, but to this day, that is the, the probably the worst thing or, or, I don't know, sounding wrong, the most interesting thing. Probably in all of my career when I've really had to think on my feet and um, do what I was trained for, you know, in, in, a, in a very, very harsh clinical environment, um, you know, running straight out the helicopter into absolute silent carnage, if that makes sense, and having to do the initial triage of the patients and uh, seeing who was okay, who wasn't, who was staggering around. But the, the biggest problem on that day was that the team I got off the helicopter with, the five or six of us, three of them went to pieces because they they really were quite friendly with the guy who'd been um, vaporised and they saw him there as well and he was a friend of theirs. So that made it doubly difficult. It added to our um, total of casualties for that day and we, of course, had to get them back on the helicopter as well. Yeah. You said, you know, humour and, you know, gets you through these things and obviously camaraderie as well. So um, some of the highlights, what, what, uh, what's one of the best places you've been? One of the, the nicest places, if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the role of the army was always to protect Britain's interest at home and abroad. And I can remember when I was um, I was getting sent out to um, Belize in the central in Central America, in the Caribbean. Um, this was back in about 93. In fact, it wasn't about, it was 93. And uh, when you were going away in the army, you always had a day's, a day or two's briefing somewhere with, with what to expect in that country that you were going to. And I can remember going to this brief, briefing about Belize and I, and I knew about the field hospital set up there already. And it was very established. You know, there would be four of us in the team, you know, one surgeon, who could have been from Army, Navy or Air Force, one consultant anaesthetist and two of us operating theatre technicians, as was in the day. And I went to, to this briefing and it showed you, I think the threat was Guatemala in those days, and it showed you pictures of what their Air Force had. And to be honest, they were almost like um, Spitfires or something. The, <laughs> where we, had, we had Harriers out there and there was a resident infantry battalion there. And my four months in Belize, even though we did... A little bit of clinical work and um, we did some hearts and minds stuff on the locals. Most of my time there was spent getting incredibly brown, swimming, diving, um, you know, getting you Caribbean, laughing, giggling, being inappropriate like you could in those days and just generally having a fantastic time. I was based in Germany at the time then, actually, so I went Germany and left my children I missed my son taking his first steps because he was born in 92 so this must have been about September 93 that I went to to Belize and I I'm just missed Charlie taking his first steps and it was always difficult because you had to click 
from home life into army life. And then that became increasingly difficult. And a lot of marriages weren't helped by it, that when you went back to being at home, you had to click back into the married life again, you know, as opposed to just laughing and giggling for four months and being in the sunshine. And I think there was a lot of resentment from partners and wives in those days because they'd had the kids and they'd been looking after everything while you'd been mm. seemingly living the high life. You, know, you had some photos and stuff and, you know, there was no mobile phones in those days. So communication was via a bluey, you know, one of the military uh, self-sealing envelopes that you sent. You maybe got one phone call a month. That was it. So you you kind of missed the kids terribly and you missed your wife a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of thing. But Belize, to me, was one of the highlights of yeah. my career. And also the, the Falkland Islands was very similar, although very different. I didn't spend much time in the water there because it was so damn cold. Yeah. But that was, that was a beautiful, beautiful country as well, the oh, Falklands. Yeah. And I still think about that to this day. And I'm still in touch with people from lots of the places that I went to, I always made a point of getting to know the locals, you know, and the the people I was working with within the hospital environments in each of those places, there was always locally employed civilians as well. And to this day, via Facebook and thing, I'm still in touch with, with some of these people and we still laugh and giggle and, and, you know, come out with stories and things like that. So that's one great thing about technology for all its negatives that it's brought to this world. You know, there's also some positives and a, and a great mm. one from the horses is keeping in touch with these people that you had such fantastic times with mm. back in those days. All the places in the world you've seen, what made you retire to Cyprus and why up the north? Of all the places I saw, I think why I came back to Cyprus, because I felt it was in my blood after, well, even during the forces, still used to come out here almost every year on holiday. And then after I left the forces, I still came out here every year on holiday, even though I was primarily NHS based then. I did some freelance work as well. Um, And I knew, obviously, that having done a full a full career in the military, your your pension sort of matured at age 55. So that left some options um, to potentially retire, depending on how much I was going to get. And you never knew how much you were going to get till till it got near that time. You could get pension forecasts, but but they were never really totally accurate. Sadly, but legally, I'd lost 40% of my pension to my first wife um, as part of the divorce settlement. So that was quite a a bitter pill to swallow. But I'd already got property out here. And um, I realised that what I was going to get was going to be enough to survive on. So I made a decision to do it. And I made a decision in February 2019. And in May 2019, I arrived here. I'd stopped working in May. I retired in May. I got here and carved out a new life for myself. My marriage, which was my second marriage in those days, had deteriorated to such a degree that we were separated. I moved out here on my own um, as a single guy. Luckily, I had the property uh, the sunshine, and the reason it was the north was primarily monetary, to be honest. Um, you got a lot more bang for your buck up here. I've always viewed Cyprus as one island, and my best friend is a Greek Cypriot down in the south near Limassol, who a guy who I used to play football with right from the 80s. I did, gained a few friends up here through fishing, you know, Turkish Cypriots. The Cypriots are Cypriots. They just want Cyprus to be peaceful, 
They want a lovely life. They don't want, you know, to keep looking back. They don't want, they want history to be learned from and not to be constantly repeated. I think that's a decent phrase to use. So my Greek Cypriot friend, he comes up here to see me. He looks round. He hadn't been to the north until I lived here. And he came up and he was looking up at the mountains at what he called Bendidactylos, which we know as Beshparmak. Um, and he'd, he'd only really seen Kyrenia in books at school and things like that, you know, and to go down and walk around the harbour. And then when people realised he was Greek, some of the old boys working in the restaurants in the harbour, they spoke Greek because they could remember it from their childhood, you know, living in mixed mixed villages. So although these people were Turkish Cypriots, they were conversing with him in Greek. And my best friend, Chris, he loved it. And, you know, he was saying to them, where are you from? And they were saying, oh, you know, in 1974, we used to have a restaurant in Limassol and now we live over here. And he'd say, well, you know, I live near Limassol. You know, it, it just all the pieces of the jigsaw fell into place. And to this day, my friend Chris and his wife, they still come up here to see me. I go down there to see them. Obviously, Brexit has meant it's been difficult getting across the border and, you know, keeping your car for more than a day down there and that kind of thing. But still, almost monthly, I make a trip down there, even if it's just for the day. My sister often often holidays in the south, so I go down and meet up with her. And indeed, we did. Um, I think it was in August. And then we met up with my friend Chris and his wife, Syrupa, and, you know, go out for a lovely mezzi meal down the south. They come up here to see me. We take them to some of our local favorite restaurants and things and you know life life is rosy when the sun's got its hat on isn't it it's always great <laughs> through the summer and people are coming out from england and and everything's fab and, and you know even now the weather's gorgeous isn't it and yeah. you know we're very very i'm very very thankful for the life i can lead now i i wouldn't be able to um retire in uk because of the cost of living there because you need i think you need almost two and a half grand there a month just to survive yeah. let alone you know living a really really good life and going out to eat when you want to go out yeah. you know that's a huge difference and that's yeah. primarily why I'm out here I'm out here because I feel my soul and my roots are here and I love the sunshine I love the sea and I love everything about the island be it the south be it the north the Turkish Cypriot influences the Greek Cypriot influences everything about the island is yeah. home and I'm born here and i may well fall here we will see <laughs> um we've only got about five minutes left but this is poignant because it is remembrance day on saturday um coming up and this will this will go out just after remembrance day so what will you be doing in north cyprus for remembrance day well in north cyprus it, it's become relatively traditional that one of the bars in kuchukarenkoi literally a stone throw from where i live um always host a remembrance afternoon lunch with a little bit of pomp and ceremony, some military marches and, and joviality and um, solemnness and reflection. And so that's in the afternoon. But in the morning, there's always a service at the, the British Cemetery in Kyrenia, um, which is frequented by the Prime Minister, Mr Tatar. I've been to the last three or four there. I was honoured enough last year to lay the wreath for the Royal Army Medical Corps. So it's a time when the once a, the once a year time when us ex-forces guys can put on our medals and um, our core ties and our berets. And I actually wear my dad's berry from the RAF because my dad has a Cyprus medal from the, 
the the 50s and 60s and I wear his medals on my right hand side as you can do for family left hand side for your own medals so I'm I look a bit like Kenny Everett when I turn up at these <laughs> things with all my all of my dad's jingly danglies on one side it's very moving going there because they talk about the Cyprus troubles there's a monument for the RF regiment um you know with a names of some of the fallen on there there's a couple of Royal Army Medical Corps guys so it's very moving going there and and that coincides with um the 11 o'clock sort of amnesty um thing going on in England and the cenotaph and stuff like that so at dead on 11 o'clock the bugler plays at the the British cemetery in Kyrenia it's very very moving and then when that's all finished and we've laid our wreaths and indeed this year I'm laying the wreath of the RF regiment and I'm honored to be doing that, um, you know, for my father, I checked online at some of the RF regiment sites that it was okay for me to do it because I never served in that regiment, but because I'm carrying my dad's medals, they were more than happy that, that they were being represented. And a friend of mine who moved out here permanently is laying the Royal Army Medical Corps one because he was in the Royal Army Medical Corps. So it's all working out really well. And then I found out that the, the usual the usual thing that was on down in Kuchukarenkoy at Stevie's Bar, as was, wasn't on this year. So I've gone about organising that myself. So I was just getting bits and pieces ready last night, um, a little nucleus of us. I got about four or five guys together. We're going to do it this year. So we were getting all the military marches and that ready. And indeed, tonight we're meeting up at seven o'clock for a chin wagon. We're going to run through the order of events for Sunday afternoon. Um, after we've come back from Kyrenia from the church service, we'll, we'll enjoy some lovely food. We'll still have our medals on and everything. And um, we can tell each other and other people our war stories and call each other silly names like we did for 22 years. Well, that was Ralph O'Neill, former army officer who became an operating theatre technician. And uh, what an incredible story, Sarah. Um, just have to apologise a bit for some of the audio quality. We obviously, two of us were recording that out here in North Cyprus and often the internet signal isn't quite what it should be. But I hope it didn't spoil anybody's enjoyment too much. Yeah, because as you say, an incredible story. And I worked out actually if he said he was born in December 63, it's a big birthday for him coming up. Anyway, just thought I'd say. <laughs> he probably knows that. But anyway, yeah. uh, happy birthday <laughs> for December. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you very much indeed again to Ralph for his time. I'm sure we'll speak to him again in the future because he's got loads more stories, I'm sure. Anyway, so thank you again for listening. Please tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast so you know when the next one is out. You can get in touch uh, with us by finding us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it's called these days. Just look for Talking Round North Cyprus or you can email trnc.podcast at gmail.com I'm Sarah Palmer and I'm Roger Barr great talking to you hope to speak again very soon very soon